Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. So glad that you're here today. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the book of Acts and chapter number 17. You don't happen to have a Bible with you. There's one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in it to page 107 in the back, and you would find yourself parked at Acts chapter 17. We're continuing our study of Acts, which we've entitled Seeds, and we're now in phase three as we're moving through the last third of the book of Acts. And as we get ready to look at Acts chapter 17 today, I want to remind us that the message of salvation that we have been entrusted with is a message that is for everybody. You know, Jesus emphasized that in Matthew 28, 19, when he was talking to the disciples and he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he reminds them about that in in the first part of Acts in chapter 1 and verse 8 when he says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. And that remote part of the world includes places like Latvia and China, where a number of our people are today, and Oklahoma. Aren't you glad that it includes Oklahoma. But beyond geography, this is a message for everybody, not just everybody who lives in these various places, but it's for everybody. It's for religious people. Uh, It's a message for non-religious people. It's a message for everyday common folks. It's also a message for the educated elite. And as we go into a study of Acts 17 today, we're going to see some different responses to the gospel, different responses to the Word of God. And as we're looking at it, I think it would be good for us to ask ourselves the question, what is my response? What is my response to the gospel? What is my response to God's Word? And we're also going to see um, some different approaches that Paul gives to different groups of people. And I think as we look at those different approaches to different groups, it'd be good to ask ourselves the question, what does God want me to learn from observing his different approaches to different groups of people? Now, as we come to Acts 17, we're we're moving into the second missionary journey of Paul, and today I want to look at three snapshots from the second missionary journey. The first snapshot is going to occur in a city called Thessalonica. We're going to see that in the first nine verses of the chapter, where largely we see people in Thessalonica rejecting the word. The second snapshot we're going to look at comes from a place called Berea. We see that in verses 10 to 15. And largely the response there is welcoming the word. And we're going to look at those first two snapshots fairly quickly and a little more in depth a little more closely at the third snapshot, which comes from a place called Athens. Most of us are aware that it's still a significant city in Greece today. And in verses 16 to 34, we're going to see a snapshot from there where Paul is communicating with 
the educated elite. And we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul by observing what he does. So let's begin by looking at snapshot number one, and that is in a place called Thessalonica. Notice it says in verse 1, it says, And when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. They were starting out at Philippi. And there there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they come to this city called Thessalonica. Now, I'm going to put a map up on the screen just to give you an idea where these places are. And if you look at the right-hand portion, you'll see the Aegean Sea. And almost at 12 o'clock, you see Philippi. And then as you move backwards on the clock, you have Thessalonica. And then they're going to eventually be in Berea and eventually also straight down south in Athens. But when we hear Thessalonica, that is familiar to those of us who have some knowledge of the Bible because Paul later pens two letters to those in Thessalonica called First and Second Thessalonians. And Thessalonica was on the main ignition highway that crossed the continent. It was the ultimate interstate highway in its day. And in fact, that highway went right through the middle of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital and the most important city of Macedonia. Some 200,000 people lived there. They had a fine harbor. Nearby, they had some hot springs, and so it was also a resort city. We don't know exactly how long Paul was there, but he was there for a while because we learned from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 17 that two different times the believers in Philippi sent down a financial support gift to Paul in Thessalonica. And so notice, they arrive in Thessalonica, chapter 17, verse 1, where there was the synagogue of the Jews, it says. And according to Paul's custom, his regular practice, he went to the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, again, we're pretty far removed from the culture of the day, so I want us to remind us of what actually happened in a synagogue uh, when they would assemble. They had actually an order of worship, if you would. It would begin every time with the Shema. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. That's the way they called themselves to worship, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And after the Shema, there would be a series of prayers. Then there would be a reading from the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Then there would be some readings from the prophets. And then they would have, like we have, a a message. Sometimes the message was delivered by a regular attender. Uh, Sometimes it was offered to a visiting rabbi who would be what Paul's reputation would be. And what's really interesting is as he begins to give this message in the synagogue, there's three verbs that are used to describe how he communicated. Notice it says there at the end of verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. They were Jewish. They had a Bible, the Old Testament, that they embraced. And so he reasoned with them from the Bible. And that word that is translated reasoned here is a word from which we get our word in English, dialogue. It indicates there was sort of this back and forth interchange that they had, maybe a question and answer type of format. So the first thing he did is he reasoned with them. 
And then in verse 3, it gives us another verb. It says, he was explaining to them. This is a, a verb that comes from the word in Greek that just means open. It literally means to open up, to elaborate on the meaning, to give greater insight to the meaning of the Scripture that he was addressing. And by the way, if you're new to Wildwood, that's what we do here at Wildwood. Uh, We want to open up the Word of God and the Scriptures, and we want to elaborate, give us greater insight into its meaning. What does it really mean to us? And then the third verb that he uses here is he says he was giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. This verb literally means to place before somebody. And that's what he was doing there in the synagogue. He was just placing before them what the gospel was. He was placing before them what the Word of God teaches. And in essence, he was calling for a response. And again, that's what we do at Wildwood. We want to explain it, open it up, place it before each one of us, and then we're really calling for a response to it. It's not just something that we listen to, but something that we act upon. Notice verse 4. And some of them, these Jews who were listening, were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, a large number of those out of the Greek culture. And one of those, we know who it was. We actually know his name. His name was Jason. We're going to see him showing up in the next verse or so. Apparently, he comes to faith in Christ, and he offers to host Paul and Silas in his home. And so we have a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women of the city of Thessalonica. Now, now as Paul is communicating this, Paul's hope for the religious Jews is that they would be motivated to investigate Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. (laughs) That's what his hope was. But the way it worked out here, instead, he motivated them to persecute Paul and Silas and the church. Look at verse 5. A majority of the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. A majority of these Jews were just very quick to dismiss the word of God. I'm not even going to process what you say that it says. I don't even want to listen to it. And I hope that's not your response as the Word of God is laid out before you. My prayer would be that you would process it. I don't want you to miss the truth that leads to true life. I don't want you to miss the best news ever that could come to you. So they find these wicked men, you know, in the marketplace, probably some rabble just hanging around, you know, looking for something to to do and something to happen. They form a mob, and in verse 5, they go and they attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people, Paul and Silas. They thought Paul and Silas were there. But I don't know where they were right at that moment, but they weren't actually at the house of Jason. So they don't find them, verse 6, and they begin to drag Jason and some of the other brothers and sisters before the city authorities, and they were shouting out, these men 
who have upset the world have come here also. These are guys who've upset the world. And I love what Ray Steadman says about this. He says, what they were shouting and what they were saying was true. These were indeed men who had turned the world upside down, but what they didn't realize was that the world was already upside down. When you turn something upside down, which is already upside down, you turn it right side up. The world was turned upside down at the fall of Adam, and it has been operating in reverse ever since. That's why it never really works right. In spite of the best efforts of men, we are still struggling with the same problems men wrestled with multiple centuries ago in the days of Noah before the flood. No progress whatsoever has been made because the world is upside down. But now the gospel comes in and turns it right side up. As men and women respond to the gospel, God's original intent for man begins to be worked out in their lives. This is what many of us have experienced. Peace and tranquility and progress and harmony and love and grace, all these wonderful things begin to flow out of a community which is operating the fullness of life provided in Jesus Christ. So they were indeed men who turned the world upside down. But... They don't find them. Verse 9. So they receive from Jason a pledge, and then they release them. So apparently what had to happen is that Jason had to put up a bond, and it was a bond that would guarantee that Paul and Silas would leave. Effectively, they were being legally barred from Thessalonica, which is an interesting thing because in his first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 18, he says to the Thessalonians later, I wanted to come to you, and yet Satan hindered us. Could very well be that this legal barment from Thessalonica was that which to he was referring. That was what he was referring to. Well, look at verse 10. It says, the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And that brings us to the second snapshot we want to look, and that is a snapshot in Berea where they were welcoming the word. I want to remind you on the map uh, where Berea was located. It's a little bit to the west and a little bit to the south. The Ignatian Highway, that main interstate, cut, cuts right across the um, continent there, and this is now down and away. It's, it's a little more off the beaten path. Berea is a smaller city that's off the Ignatian Highway. But notice this about those in Berea, verse 11. Now, these in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. They were more noble-minded. They were just more balanced. They were less prejudiced. And they were willing to listen carefully to what God's Word had to say to them. There was a readiness among them to hear from God. And that's the way we need to be. We need to be willing as we come in from our week to listen carefully to the Word of God. There needs to be a readiness, God, I'm ready to hear from you today. 
And so there was that willingness to listen carefully, yet, this is very important, they were not gullible people. They were not gullible people. They weren't saying, well, someone's up there just spouting off about what the Bible has to say, and I guess if that's what they say, that's what it is. No, they welcomed the word, but they weren't gullible people. It says in verse 11 that they examined the Scripture daily. Now, it's important that we learn from them. Never, ever just swallow what you hear. Never just auto-accept what someone is teaching from the Bible just because they're using the Bible. Don't do that. We want to be teachable and we want to be reachable. We want to be open. We want to hear from God. But we need to be like the Bereans. The Bereans were searchers and they were verifiers. And, and, and we have a lot of people out there in the world today, a lot of people on television who open up a Bible and they begin to teach things like they're from God. And we need to be like the Bereans. We need to check it out. We don't just swallow it. Just because they're using a Bible doesn't mean they're giving us an accurate picture of what the Bible has to say. And so what we all need to do is we all need to be a Berean. I want you to be a Berean. I want to be a Berean, which means that we lean in. We're ready to hear from the Word of God. But also it means that we study it for ourselves, that we verify, that we check out the content and the context. By the way, if we were all doing that in the Christian community at large, there'd be a whole lot less problems with cults. There'd be a whole lot less problem with false teaching. You know, what, what's the number one mistake that people make when they, when they teach the Word of God? Anybody know what it is? It's teaching it out of context. You can make it say really anything you want if you just pull a phrase here and pull a phrase there. So what we need to learn to do is to check the context of what is being taught. We need to be a Berean. Now notice, it says in verse 12 that many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But, next verse... When the Jews of Thessalonica, remember back up there on the main interstate highway, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they went down to Berea also, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so ultimately what ends up happening here is that Silas and Timothy stay in Berea, but they send Paul away. You've got to get out of here, man. You're the lightning rod. And so they send Paul to the city of Athens, which leads us to snapshot number three in Athens, where we see Paul communicating with the educated elite. Now, before we actually get into that, I, I want to just set a little bit of historical background. It's just helpful for us to have a feel for what he's getting ready to walk into. First of all, a little background on the city of Athens. Athens was the center stage of the golden age of Greek philosophy. Now, they had begun to fade a little bit, but Athens was still the intellectual capital of the world. Athens was home to all the big names of philosophy. Socrates, Plato, you've heard these names, Aristotle. 
Athens was the number one university city in all of the known world. It was the center of intellectualism and humanism. And in Athens, there was this incredible proliferation of religious temples. And and there were statues of various gods of every flavor. Every flavor of God that you can imagine was represented there in Athens. In fact, one eyewitness estimated that in Athens there were 30,000 statues of gods. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine 30,000 statues? That was Athens. Now, a little more historical background because it's going to pop up here. I want to talk a little bit about Epicureans, this particular philosophic group. And Epicureans were materialists. Epicureans believe that the physical world that we see is the only reality that there is. In their view, pleasure was the chief aim of life. Their focus was enjoy life. I mean, they just, they summarize the old saying, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. This is the only reality we know, therefore we must enjoy. And Epicureans believe that if, 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 if God exists, he's just way out there somewhere, he's remote, and he has nothing to do with man. Epicureans also believed that death ends it all. Remember, this is the only reality, this life. Epicureans believed there was no sin, there was no judgment, there was no afterlife, there was no resurrection. Now, why do I I go into all that detail? Well, there's a reason why, and that is that we live among modern-day Epicureans who have the same view of life. Physical world is the only reality. Let's just enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry, get the most out of it. There's no sin, there's no judgment, there's no afterlife, there's no resurrection. By way of background, there's another group of individuals that are going to surface here, and those would be the Stoics. And the Stoics were a little different. They were the rationalists of the day. They were into self-sufficiency. All I really need is me. And the Stoics believed that the highest expression you could have in the entire universe was man's reason. Man is just the epitome of it all. The Stoics took a pantheistic approach, and what that means by that is that God is just everything. God is in everything. Everything's God. God is the trees, and God is the ground, and God is the fish, and God is the rocks and everything. They believed in a God force. You know, their little saying would be, may the force be with you. Um, The Stoics had no need of a personal God. It's all about self-sufficiency. And their focus was to just calmly endure life. Now, again, why do I go into all those details? Well, we live among modern-day Stoics. And I don't know all of you. Maybe that's your worldview, that you're just into self-sufficiency, that you think the highest form of everything is just the ability to reason, and there's no need for a personal God. Well, that's what these people were like. So so just with that little bit of background, I want to go through the setup that occurs in verses 16 to 21, then we're going to take a look at Paul's message that he delivers, which is fascinating, in verses 22 and following. So let's look at the setup. 
says in verse 16, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, remember, he left, and he left Silas and Timothy behind, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city was full of idols. The NIV says he was greatly distressed. The New Living Translation says he was deeply troubled. He saw what was going on, and it really bothered him. And as he normally would do in verse 17, he steps into the synagogue. He wants to interact with those Jews who are in the synagogue. But in the process of all this going on over probably several days, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some of them were saying, by the way, this isn't a compliment, this is an insult, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Now, that's a very colorful phrase that they use. Literally, they said in Greek, what does this seed picker have to say? And just so you understand that, it's a little bit like, if I could draw an analogy, a little bit like when you go to McDonald's, you know, if you ever sit out there in the parking lot, and you'll notice, if you, if you observe carefully, there's these birds who come around. And they're in the parking lot, and they're just kind of hopping around, and they're pecking through other people's trash and discards. You know what I'm talking about? That's the imagery they were using of Paul here. They're saying he's just one of those, you know, seed pickers. He's just hopping around. He's just pecking through other people's philosophical trash and discards. What does he really have to say to us? Well, verse 19, they take Paul, though, and they bring him to the Areopagus, um, which is also called Mars Hill. And by the way, I was there in 1977, stood on the very place that this interaction happened. And, you know, as he says, you're bringing some strange things, verse 20, to our ears, and we want to know what more of what these things mean. Then there's a little parentheses there. In verse 21, where Luke says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers who would come to Athens used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. I mean, there's a little irony here. I mean, who are the real real babblers? It's these guys. They just like talking. And they get tired of hearing the same stuff, so they want to hear something new, which then leads us to Paul's message that he delivers, beginning in verse 22. Notice his introduction, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim you. You see how he compliments them on their religiosity. And then he said, you know, when I'm traveling around looking at all this stuff, and man, you guys got a lot of stuff out there. I came upon this one altar there that said, to an unknown God, which communicates to me that you are admitting that you may have missed something. And this unknown God may be unknown to you, but he's not unknowable. And you can't 
worship a God you don't know, so let me introduce you to him. And it's just fascinating to me how, how he begins right where they are. Remember, how did he deal with the Jews? Because they were oriented already to the Bible of their day. They had already embraced the Old Testament. He went right to the Scriptures. But these people don't know anything about that. So he starts in a different place. He begins right where they are. And he says this, This unknown God that you have the altar to right over there, let me just tell you about him. First, this unknown God is your Creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. This unknown God is not only your creator, this unknown God is your provider. Verse 25, he himself gives to all peoples life and breath and all things. You see, people of Athens, he's not some God who is God who is far away, who lives way out there, who really doesn't care. He's your creator. He is your provider. And this unknown God is not only your creator and your provider, he is the ruler of this world, verses 26 to 29. He's the ruler of this world. He has a plan and he has been working it, verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, God did, their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. He is the ruler of this world. He rules history. He rules geography. You're not in this place by accident. God put you in Athens. And he goes on to say in verse 27 regarding this unknown God, at the end of the verse, he says, he is not far from each one of us. He is the opposite of this distant absentee God that many of you believe in. He is, in fact, very accessible. He is very approachable. And we learn from verse 28 that Paul was very well read because he says, in him, God, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets have said, quoting, for we also all are his children. Some of their own poets have said that. He's quoting from part of a poem. And when he says, we are his children, Paul really meant naturally speaking, not yet spiritually speaking. But that's what we are. I mean, he's the creator. He's the provider. He's the ruler. We're really all naturally the children of God. It's not a random existence. You're not here by an accident. He's basically saying, you, men and women of Athens, have been created to have fellowship with God. In verse 29, he says, this God is not a God who's been formed by the thought of man. You know, the Greek gods, if you study them, they're just patterned after men and women. They just act like regular everyday men and women. They have temper tantrums just like everyday men and women have. He says, no, 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 the God, this unknown God to you, is not like that. Not like that at all. And in verse 30, he says that God has been patient regarding man's ignorance of him. But now, he's calling everyone to repent. That means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. You may not have known about him. He may have been the unknown God, but, and God has been patient about that. But now, today, he's calling you to repent. Why? 
should anybody repent? Why should anybody repent today? Because, verse 31, judgment is coming. It's the same message that our generation needs today. We need to repent if we haven't trusted in Christ because judgment is coming. The truth is, Paul was saying, we're accountable to this unknown God. And we are, every one of us, accountable to God himself. And the proof that judgment is coming is he then mentions the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's a great message. I want you to see the reactions that Paul gets to his message. The first reaction he gets in verse 32 says, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Some just said, Get out of here. <laughs> we know there's, there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. You know, get away from us. We don't need this. One reaction was that some sneered. And then notice some others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Their reaction was basically later. And we'll talk about this sometime later. Kind of intriguing, but uh, we're really not interested right now. But later, you know, we'll hear more. And then the third reaction we learn from Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some believed. Some embraced the message that Paul was communicating. And you know, you can almost skip right by it. You see Dionysius the Areopagite. That was a member of the city council of Athens. Some people just blew the message away. Get out of here. I don't want to hear that. Other people say, yeah, we'll talk sometime down the road. we got life to live now. But one of the members of the city council was among those who said, you know, you're right on. I believe in Jesus, what he did on the cross, and that he was raised from the dead. Now, Paul lays out for us a very interesting pattern here I think we can all learn from when, when we talk about interacting with people. And I want to go through it. The first thing that Paul did is he began where they were. And that's what we need to do. We need to begin where they are. You know, he, he, he started with the Jews in one way, and he starts with the, the philosophical people there in Athens in another way. And that's the way we need to think about that. We need to look for common ground with somebody. That's a good way to start the conversation. Second thing that he did in this pattern is he, and we need to do, we need to clarify that God is knowable. People need to know that. He's not just a God who's a way out there somewhere. The third thing we can learn from his pattern is to correct their errant views of God. Uh, people have all kinds of views of who God is and the way that he is, and we can spend some time with Scripture showing them that God is really different from that. Number four, in terms of the pattern, he reminded them of their accountability to God. That's what we need to do. We need to remind them that we're all accountable. I'm accountable, you're accountable, every human being is accountable to God. And then fifthly, point to the cross and to the resurrection. That's what Paul did. And so there you have it. It's just a wonderful way to approach anybody about the person of Christ. But I do want you to notice this. 
I mean, Paul demonstrates an incredible pattern. We can all learn from it. But notice that even Paul got mixed responses. He went through all that, and he gets mixed responses. And what happens to us sometimes, we attempt to communicate truth about the gospel and the scriptures to somebody, and we get the sneer, get out of here, I don't want to talk to you. And what we often do, well, now I'm going to just quiet, be quiet, I'm not going to say anything. You know, they just sort of gave me that push away. Or, you know, we get the response, ah, kind of interesting, well, some other time, some other day we can talk about this. Well, I guess I might as well not say anything anymore because I'm not. We need to expect mixed responses. And when we expect mixed responses, we won't be discouraged. But if we keep communicating it, there's some who are going to say, yeah, I need that in my life. Three incredible snapshots that we get from Acts chapter 17. Now, as we close, I want to talk about some life response that we can have. What can we do differently? What can we learn from this section of Scripture we can apply immediately? Here's the first life response. We need to be a Berean. The Bereans were great models for us. Let's be Bereans. Let's be teachable and reachable. When God's Word comes to us, whether we're reading it, studying it, hearing it taught, we want to be teachable and reachable. God, speak to me. I'm here today. I want to hear from you. But we also need to be a searcher and a verifier. Don't just swallow everything you hear on the radio, everything you see on television. Be a Berean. Life response number two would be to ask ourselves this question. Who exists in your marketplace? Remember, Paul was in the marketplace there. And as he was in the marketplace, he was thinking, whom do I need to communicate with about Jesus Christ? I like the way Chuck Swindoll puts it. He puts it this way. With your mind's eye, take a glance around your marketplace and see who is present. There's the person who smiles at you from behind a counter, the one who stares straight ahead in the elevator or sits quietly in the park, You know the names of a few of them, like the custodian or the security guard or the briefcase-carrying executive or the rope-skipping little girl. See, God wants to use you and me to communicate the gospel and the Word of God to people. So who, who is in your marketplace right now? You're going to have different people than I'm going to have. Then, the third life response, not only to be a Berean, but ask the question, who exists in our marketplace? But the third life response, let the gospel turn your life right side up. If you're here today or you're listening to me and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your rescuer from sin and judgment, I want you to know that that gospel message is for you. And you live in a world that's turned upside down and your life apart from Christ is upside down but you can let the gospel turn your life right side up. You may not know it, but the truth is that you were created to have fellowship with God. That's why you're on this planet. And God has been patient. You might say, well, I didn't know all this stuff. Well, God has been patient in our ignorance, but now today is the day of repentance. We need to change our mind about who Christ is and what he's done and and believe and trust in that. We need Jesus Christ, every one of us, 
He's the only one who can deal with the sin sickness and the spiritual cancer that we all have. And if we don't deal with it right, cancer always leads to death. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here to hear it. And Father, we want to pray for any who may be hearing my voice who've never yet trusted in Jesus Christ as their rescuer, that they would see the importance of doing that right now. Because when they do that and they embrace and believe and rest in what he has done in his death on the cross and his resurrection to new life, their life can be flipped around right side up. It's a wonderful perspective to have. Many of us have already experienced it. We pray that everyone would. And Father, today is a great reminder that you're more than just our rescuer. You're the God we need every single day. You are our sustainer. When we go off on our own, we're just looking for trouble. We really need you. You're the daily hope that we need every single day. When we're on our own, we will fail. And so we want to acknowledge those of us who know you as Savior that we need you every day hour of every day. And we thank you that you're always there for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.